Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chi Zhang, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing I Care A Lot, a film about toxic girl boss culture and It's a Sin, a limited series about the coming of age during the AIDS crisis. Serious stuff. Yeah. But... <laughs> Speaking of serious stuff, I guess, what have you been up to this week, Jenny? Um, this week has felt incredibly long, like every week, but I don't know, this one especially so. I was just telling you offline, Pellin, like, I don't really know anything that I've done this week, like, besides just, like, read and, like, dig into and just, like, nonstop thinking about the attacks against, like, Asian people in this country and... yeah. How, like, it's not just that, but having to think about stuff like, you know, the the tension and the sort of history, the complicated history between, you know, Asian communities, black communities, and then stuff about, like, Xinjiang in China coming up and, like, how that relates to, to how people talk about this stuff with, like, Asian attacks and, like, feelings of xenophobia here. And I don't know. I want to s- stop like fixating on this but i i can't because it's hard not to yeah i don't know i spent like an hour just like scrolling through like an asian american reddit wherein Mm -hmm. like most of the posts consist of like just collecting all of these individual like local news reports on whatever attacks have come up recently and i don't know it's hard to know how to think about it beyond like of course like fuck this is bad and it should not yeah. be happening but like there's so many complicating factors to how we talk about any aspect of like asian americana and it's uh my brain is i want it to be washed clean and empty yeah um anyway what about you felon what have you been thinking of or doing lately yeah i just i just wanted to say like it's for any of our listeners like some it's not every week lighthearted, you know so we we are we are a thoughtful pair, and we, we get really down about stuff. So yeah, we're like mostly depressed. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 both depressed. Well, we're both clinically depressed. So it's like it's fine. Um, yeah, I've been fine. I I went to Philly this week to uh, film some stuff for work, and it was fun to just get out of my apartment because I'm one of the like I think I've talked about this, but I'm one of those people that I don't really go out for walks every day. Like I I'm okay not leaving, so it was really weird to just be in a car and on a road. So that was fun. Unfortunately, when I got back, uh, I found out that my really expensive eye cream was stolen. <laughs> Um, which is fine. Aww. Like, I, I, I don't actually, I wasn't mad or anything because, you know, the way that shit like that works, I could just call the company and they'll mm-hmm. send me another. Yeah. Um, I hope whoever took it is using it and they appreciate how, you know, what that's doing for their eye bags. For anyone that's wondering, it's a SkinCeuticals age cream, which is, I think, mm. just under a hundred bucks. It's Oof. like, it's like my most expensive skincare item that I pay for. So um, just like but, take it, like package thief at your lobby or something. Yeah, exactly. Like there's that we have a lobby. Like it's not secure at all, but mm. we've never had a package stolen. I think it's just literally just because it was sitting there while I was in Philly. Uh. But it was just it's just funny. Like I find I've heard about it in New- like when you live in New York, yeah. it's like getting your packages stolen is is very standard practice. I just find it fascinating because I find people that steal packages very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> just like i get it i get why you would take it like the thrill of not knowing but i you know what if you get something you really don't give a fuck about you know like 
Yeah. Well, so, that- I, I guess it's like a net. Either way, it's a net gain, right? Like if you don't get caught, nothing to lose. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's just it's just funny. Please use it. Like I, they're obviously not going to be listening to this podcast, but I really really hope they use it and it and it helps them. Or maybe they gifted it to someone. Someone you know, who needs and that it. made them happy. Yeah. yeah. Fuck it, man. Uh, I guess that's <laughs> a, the charitable way to think about this. Indeed. Um, enjoy that $100 eye cream. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So uh, that's what's been going on with us. Um, being depressed about the world and and stolen eye creams. Um, what have you been watching this week, Jenny? So I watched I Care A Lot. This has been a listener request from a few people, I think. Yeah, like at least five people have asked us to talk about this film, which is quite rare. (laughs) That's sort of like the the highest number of requests for anything. Not that we're like overloaded with with requests all the time, but I guess people really want to know. They do. Uh, um, And I guess I can understand why, um, which we'll get into a little bit later on. But first, I'll I'll go ahead and introduce this film. So I Care A Lot is on Netflix right now. Um, It's fairly new. It's been sort of at the the top of the list on Netflix recently. It's directed and written by the British filmmaker Jake Blakeson, and it's starring pretty. It has like a pretty robust cast: people like mm-hmm. Rosamund Pike, Peter Dinklage, Isa Gonzalez, Diane Weiss, Chris Messina. Um, so pretty stat cast. The plot is kind of it's it's like a little bit convoluted, but also like a pretty straightforward kind of thriller, action, crime, heist sort of thing. Um, so Rosamund Pike, she plays. Marla Grayson, um, this pretty girl boss-esque character who has built a mini business empire through elder guardianship abuse, wherein she works with a corrupt doctor who feeds her like a steady stream of vulnerable old people with money. And she takes advantage of the the flaws and loopholes of the legal system to become their court-appointed legal guardians, shuts them away in nursing homes, uses their assets to pay herself prevents their family and friends from ever seeing them. But a new ward, a wealthy retiree who seemingly has no family, is not what she seems. And soon it's like Marla and her girlfriend going up against a crime lord with connections to the Russian mafia. And that is sort of the the main arc and thrust of the film. And it's worth noting that this, I think, has been a pretty polarizing film. Oh, yeah. Um, so even like between audience and critics, like on if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, 80% uh, score for critic reviews and then the audience score is only 36% so that's, that's like crazy. huge gulf and then even critics themselves are pretty divided like you'll see people praising it like Salon they they called it a stinging indictment of neoliberal girl boss feminism but then others are like actually this is like girl boss feminism like it's causing a lot of ruckus and it's kind of a hard film to figure out in a way because you don't really know how much is deliberate meant to be you know this way or that way or not like what are the levels of irony and how are they really working but yeah what what did you think of the film when you saw it Helen? very similar to how people are a, bit, a little bit mixed mm-hmm. there were points in which i really hated it and so much of that had to do with uh some some of the especially the narrated stuff or some of the dialogue felt too forced so it felt like it was trying to capital s say 
something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only thing that annoyed me. But for the most part, I thought like I was entertained. It is. I was compelled by it. Yeah, yeah I, I did want to finish it. I me was too. interested, like the premise itself, in terms of you know that that kind of scam that she's got going on. I didn't even know that that was like a thing. Oh, yeah, it totally is. I only learned about it, I think it was 2017, The New Yorker had a big feature about this kind of thing, like this Mm. uh, legal guardianship, conservatorship, abuse of elders. And yeah, yeah, it was was terrifying to learn of that to begin with, because I had no idea that was a thing either. And then this movie, I think that, you know, maybe the silver lining of this movie is that it'll make more people aware of this at the very least. I immediately looked it up after and was like, okay, parents grandparents myself eventually like you gotta have you gotta declare a power of attorney with like a person you trust so then that can prevent this kind of thing from happening hopefully yeah it's horrifying yeah there's like a really really great sequence in the film that compounds it in terms of how terrifying it is and i guess it was great because you knew it was like i knew it was coming I knew that Diane Weist's character was going to be a problem for her, which is like, it's so delicious when it finally plays out. Like, I think the biggest problem that I have with it, I do wish that Marla Grayson was just a touch less corny in it. Oh, yeah. Because I think she is very, she's written very cornily. And um, it's annoying because the way that she is, she, you know, Rosamund Pike is basically another version of her Gone Girl character. Mm -hmm. Um, Just someone that is ruthless and squirrels her way out of situations through sheer refusal to back down. Yeah, just force of will. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which is always great to watch. And I think I always delight in watching female characters like that. But in terms of, you know, an anti-hero, her talking about being a woman and and doing it because she's a woman, I mean, sure, there's a part of it is like maybe she is convincing herself that that's a reason enough. It's just, I just wish there was less of that because you're already seeing her do the bad things. So she's already an anti-hero. She doesn't have to press it upon us. You know, she thinks she's right because she's a woman. Would you, uh, would you call her an anti-hero? No, I guess not. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I wouldn't. I think she's just straight up a terrible person, yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's hard again because it's like, well, we know that, you know, all these characters are morally rotten by design. She, like, abuses and exploits, like, elderly people, like, and then Peter Dinklage, his character, the ex-Russian mafia guy, he- He was so good in this, by the way. I know, I'm, I'm always, always thrilled to see him in anything, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, they, they have that scene at the beginning where he shows, like, complete apathy towards learning that, like, some of his drug mules have died, um, you know, during his, his schemes. So mm-hmm. you, you know, like, they are both ruthless. They're terrible. Um, they will exploit as much as they can in this, like, fucked up system. So you know, like, cognitively, there's no one really to, to root for. But I wonder, like, again, like, how much of this is, like, you know, the girl boss rhetoric, was that because the film kind of wanted just to set that up so we can illustrate how terrible girl boss stuff is? Like, yeah. Um, or how much of it was meant to sort of try to endear Marla to the audience as well with a little bit of this sort of, you know, hinting at this battle of the sexes, like gender parody kind of thing. I don't know. It's still really hard for me to tell. Like, and if you're creating two characters going head to head and they're both totally terrible and the film wants you to know that these are both bad people, you shouldn't be rooting for either of them. Is it like trying to deliberately set up this sort of uncomfortable 
like cognitive dissonance in your head like whenever you do start to feel for any of the characters like it wants you to be like geez i felt bad for this person in that moment which means maybe i am terrible i don't know was it trying to do that deliberately it's really hard for me to tell at this point yeah and you know i harp on about show don't tell all the time this film does a lot of telling which is really fucking annoying and i think that's like what it comes down to is i could we all could have gotten that we're all intelligent enough to get that messaging of you know even women or even like the people that have figured out the american system of success the way that they exploit that and the way that they exploit other people like women are complicit in that you i could have gotten that just from her just that's it we just see her doing it and that's enough but yeah it was weird and you know obviously in the second half of the film when things are happening to rosamund pike and her girlfriend's like a girlfriend in the film her character i genuinely didn't care like i I really was just like oh this is fun it's like watching like a fight between two people that you hate right and you're just there pulling up with popcorn yeah and i think some critics took you know they they found that to be a problem like they there's some of their negative reaction was like there's no one to root for but again it's that thing of like well i guess maybe that is by design and yeah you shouldn't be rooting for anyone and it maybe it's hard for audiences to relate some audiences to relate to a film where there is no one they can uh, sort of root for or see themselves yeah. in which could explain i guess some of the overall pretty negative audience uh, reaction mm. yeah it reminded me a lot of nightcrawler have you seen nightcrawler no not yet yeah good double feature with this one i think because mm-hmm. it's it's basically about that go-getter anyone can make it if you put your head down culture there there's also no one redeemable in that film either there is one person that's redeemable and it's just basically the person around the main character but the main character is not redeemable and it plays out in a similar fashion bar the last five minutes of i care a lot yeah um and what was your reaction or like how did the ending change or confirm i guess like your thoughts like while watching this whole film without spoiling it we're not going to spoil the what happens basically in the last five minutes like you said yeah um, i mean okay so it, i'm I'm gonna have to spoil it somehow like you will deduce from what i say as okay. to what happens okay then uh so just warning if you have not huge, huge film. Spoiler, yeah just skip ahead yeah i I guess the ending convinced me of what the mission statement of the film was, mm-hmm. which is that there are no winners. There, There is no hero. No one really wins within this system of like go get a lion lamb dichotomy that is kind of communicated to us right throughout it. Um, what about you? What did you think of it? Yeah, I think probably, and I'm not saying this with like 100% confidence, but probably it does like confirm... You know, that everything that preceded that those final moments, they were meant in that kind of, like, ironic, really dark comedy, like, darkly comic kind of way. And kind of a statement against the kind of, like, weaponized white girl boss feminism, etc., etc., everything that had preceded it. Yeah. Um, so it basically, like, it confirms that the film is deeply, deeply cynical, which mm-hmm. is totally fine, I think. Um, yeah. Especially if that is, like, the intent, that was the mission, I think, like, mission accomplished, which, again, it's not going to bring up any warm and fuzzy feelings for people who are leaving, not the movie theater at this point, but, you know, turning off Netflix. It left me feeling, like, pretty hollow and, like, Jesus, fuck this fucking world. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, if that was the intent, which it seems to be, like, it, I think it was successful in that regard. Yeah. And I think, like, it, that feeling that I had, so spoiler alert again for the ending, that feeling that I had at the end of the film was very similar to the ending of Uncut Gems, 
where mm. you know someone that is like, even though you do root for Howie yeah. low key in Uncut Gems somehow yeah some, in some sense like yeah. I rewatched Sun- I, I rewatched Uncut Gems and I was just like no I fucking hate this guy actually um, but like, he's so in over his head he's um, just it, yeah just completely lost <laughs> at sea um, he the, the way that that ends is very like I felt vindicated by it where I was just like yeah that's what you get like that's you at some point like, this is what happens play to you stupid games yeah okay <laughs> yeah like at, at some point shit will catch up to you mm-hmm. and then so for the for the ending of that film that's what it felt like like for i care a lot that's what it felt like because it was just like you had everything going for you you just you made it through just by the skin of your teeth so many times but at some point some dickhead <laughs> will find you and fuck up your shit like you, sometimes you just do it to the wrong one right which i guess is like again like you said it's not a surprising outcome when your whole thing is predicated on exploiting these people preventing them from seeing their family and friends and yeah. um you know leaving them to you know die alone in a nursing home somewhere yeah it's just funny with that character with that guy the one at the very like the, the guy that basically bookends the film yeah. <laughs> at the very beginning and the end the only annoying thing was obviously like all his, I guess, anti-feminist rhetoric that was written in. Um, oh yeah, it, they made him like they made him like made him a sexist and yeah. Somehow that was like like Marla used that as her justification. She was like, "You're just afraid that a woman, you're mad that a woman beat you or whatever." Yeah, and you know, if you threaten me again, I'll rip your dick and your balls off or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like that was. It's just too. It's too much. Don't. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It would have been so much stronger if that was written out. Like, this guy is absolutely justified in being angry at her. But I guess maybe that's her delusion, right? That was the whole... Yeah. Like, that's the whole delusion of the girl boss culture is, like, you think that you're actually powerful when I, when you are rotten to the core. Right. Like, the issue with girl boss culture is that these women want to be like men. And obviously, if you're an actual feminist, you're not trying to be like a man. You're trying to have care and compassion thrown into masculinity so that everyone can be good people. Like, that's the whole point of it. On on top of, obviously, equality. It's just, it should never be equality of being a terrible person. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny now. Like, I definitely see what you've been saying, like, about the, the corniness levels now that I look back on it. It's interesting where it's like a film where I both think it could have pushed harder in certain directions and also like stripped away some of this other stuff. So just like slightly recalibrated in a different way to mm-hmm. maybe like come off a little bit more just like sharper, I think. In yeah, a little bit more critique. graceful. Yeah. yeah. Instead, we have a little bit of kind of like muddled ambiguity for some, you know, viewers, it seems like that's how they're sort of perceiving it. But yeah, yeah some interesting stuff to to think about again like yeah. <laughs> i'll link the uh the new yorker feature about this terrible phenomenon um which is the true horror of this whole film um yeah. but yeah this is definitely at least an interesting window into that um portrayed on yeah. screen yeah i think like now that we've talked about it my main takeaway is that if people are confused about what your messaging was that's a problem and as a filmmaker or as a writer you should you obviously you can have mixed messages and like the the weird confusion of your protagonist or the way that your protagonist might convince themselves in their intentions this can be this can be confused for them but the audience yeah. should never be confused you know right maybe we're just too dumb to see it but no i'm not dumb <laughs> Fuck okay. that. i'm not dumb <laughs> we're not dumb people like it's just straight up like 
we get what is trying to be said. I just can't tell if the filmmaker is dumb. Right. That's that the problem. That's the main sort of question. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know if the filmmaker is an intelligent person that is trying to give me an intelligent message. But yeah, it's still fun. Um, shout out to Rosamund Pike's hair. Obviously, I think a lot of people have been talking about that bob. That razor sharp it's bob. so good. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's worth checking out. Yeah. Now, what about you, Helen? What did you watch this week? So I have been watching It's a Sin on a very slow drip because it is, you know, one of my favorites, a limited series. There's only five mm-hmm. parts. You can watch it on HBO Max. So it's created by Russell T. Davies, who also created Years and Years, which is also on HBO Max. He, in England, he's known for reviving Doctor Who to, to what oh. it is now, basically. And I grew up on his Doctor Who. He himself is a gay man. He created Queer as Folk, which is a British series that was then turned into an American TV series about a group of gay guys as well. This was back in 99 and the early Mm. aughts. So this series is, I guess, like another coming of age series, which, you know, me and Jenny's faves. Um, Yeah. And um, it's about a group of teens that find their own corner of London, their own community to be themselves and explore their sexuality, their creativity, their personhood. What's special about this series is that it's set in 1981, like 81 onwards, and it Mm -hmm. explores the AIDS crisis as it slowly unfolds in London, which then obviously casts a really dark shadow on the gay scene of, of the city. So we are introduced to five characters, of which Richie, who is played by Ollie Alexander, um, is kind of the protagonist. Like they, they all get their fair share, it's split over the episodes, obviously, but he's kind of the person that we keep coming back to. They meet through like school or drama or being in the same pub together at the same time, and then they eventually become friends and move into their huge flat, which is called the Pink Palace which is a fantastic name. I think I think the best way to describe this show is like you're either in from the first episode or you're out and there is no way that you cannot be in. How did you feel about the pilot, Jenny? Like cuz you started watching it this week as well. I started watching it last night. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um and I marathon all of it late into the night. Incredible, um, incredible. That's my goal, babe. Yeah. It was I think I have to admit I was kind of like doing like dual screen time while I was watching the pilot. Mm. Um but the more I kept watching, especially like going to the pilot, the second episode, the third episode, like it became the sole focus of my attention. Mm-hmm. Like the the pilot, all these characters are kind of thrown at you. Mm-hmm. And at first you see their disparate lives, uh, their unique context for like how they are raised or like how they are themselves like dealing with uh, owning their sexuality and coming out and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then watching them all sort of come together is the sort of like classically like beautiful, uh, warm TV feeling of like, oh yes, this group has finally, yeah. you know, knitted together um, and become their own little community community and then the episodes just get progressively fuck they're really emotional like as the aids crisis sort of drips in um and like seeps over every part of their lives yeah um yeah in a really expertly what you know expertly done way that is also devastating yeah that's the first thing that you'll notice is like jenny said it kind of 
takes you through all of the characters in 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 high speed fashion, which I think is like a Russell T Davies like fingerprint, basically, mm. where he just goes through character after character, and you learn so much about them. And then obviously because they're so compelling, you're you're immediately attached to everyone. Um, obviously we weren't we weren't around for when the AIDS crisis was unfolding, but there there are some things about it. Like if you don't want to watch pandemic related things, maybe this isn't for you. This isn't I I, I think this is the best of the bunch if you're gonna watch one there's a lot about it within the group that feels very similar to how like the coronavirus pandemic was unfolding where it was like you could hear whispers of it from news and and the confusion of information that was trickling in right at the beginning and the way that everyone deals with it separately like there's one person that's really panicked about it and then there's another person that thinks it's just a hoax or it's just something you know fake news yeah yeah fake news basically and i think obviously like incredibly different types of pandemics because one is you know the way that society responded to the AIDS crisis because of who the affected parties were uh, is yeah. is very different to what's happening now. But that w- that was interesting to watch. I think is just like I-, I guess this is just evergreen. <laughs> like every time there's a pandemic of any kind, this is kind of how it slowly tri- trickles in. But yeah, I I think what I wanted to talk to you about was it, it is very sad. But my favorite thing about this show is how much joy there is how the way that it's shot how the characters are they're so bombastic and Mm -hmm. the the friendship and the community with each other it's so earnest and i think that's like my favorite thing about whenever there is queer tv made by queer people this is something that is common because so much of queer culture is about joy and it is about the joy de vivre as they say it but that's why when bad things happen they feel so much more devastating yeah i was gonna say that exactly like it's so warm and even like the the tones and the colors and the way it's shot it's it, everything is so warm and and cozy yeah. and and bright it's the kind of yeah. yeah and bright and the kind of warmth that you feel from you know a sitcom when you're you're watching your favorite characters and you know nothing really bad is ultimately going to happen to them because i don't know they're in it together yeah they're living their full lives um but like you said like it makes what happens gradually over the course of this all the more tragic um yeah. and that is just like how it actually was you know like yeah. it was real tragedies unfolding people who were really just trying to live as much as they could um yeah. you know in london in in this time period yeah it's just it's it's so good one thing i wanted to talk to you about as well was you know speaking about queer tv veneno also on hbo max is something that i've previously talked about uh mm. it's just, it's it's a similar structure in that it is very bright. It looks incredible. The characters are so... Like, they're just amazing to watch. And at the same time, it's also very serious. And it's it, it follows the same swing of you are excited to spend time with these people, but also, you know, when they are going through it, you are going through it with them. Another great thing about the show, I think, is the way that it depicts that community and the way that there are tiers of community, I guess. I think Ingu Kang, our friend um, from The Hollywood Reporter, in her review, she talks about it is like the, the tiers of family that we see in the show where they are the chosen family for each other. You know, this is something, again, like very common in queer tv we see it in pose we see it in veneno there's this chosen family and then there's a family that they are blood related to who unfortunately for this group often makes it worse for them makes their lives worse than they make it better yeah they chose this family over the family who maybe rejected them who wasn't welcome who you know hated them for you know liking men as men they're 
I mean, one of the most touching things I found was like the the instances of family that do yeah. like blood family that do like love and accept them. Like we see um, Colin's mother, oh, Colin. who's so sweet, yeah. so loving of her son. And that was like one of the most devastating storylines I felt. Mm. And I think he was one of my favorite. Colin is one of my favorite yeah. characters throughout this whole thing. Yeah. In part because of that relationship with his mother, who is just, oh, it's that's really like the the first part where i just like started crying i just lost it yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um i think um i I was wondering like if davies kind of put his foot in colin's character a little bit more than the other characters because he himself is welsh and colin's obviously ah. like gorgeous welsh accent is is one of my favorite things but yeah he's oh he's so good he's such an earnest earnest person i love him so much yeah and i i also really loved and appreciated in this like the seeing this sort of like physicality of Mm. the toll that you know something like like aids takes on a person Mm -hmm. you know things from kind of even just the pallor of their skin and how they move and the lines and the eyes um and then moving on to the kind of the more serious stuff and then even from like one episode to another, you see how maybe a character who was once, you know, bright and healthy and, and thriving the way that they are changed uh, yeah. throughout the course of just a few years in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, it's really effective, uh, that decision to bring up these same characters, even in kind of like the secondary cast yeah. over and over uh, and just the changes and the, the absolute like def- devastation that yeah. this has, has wreaked in their bodies as well as everything else in their lives. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that we read so much about when we read about the AIDS crisis, when we hear obviously like the oral history of it from many people that did live through it. The disease itself just sucked the joy out of such an incredible time for the gay community, like in the 80s and the 90s. But the thing that I love about this show, and I think that the thing that many queer created film and TV that depicts this time is so much of this disease, it's terrible, but the cruelty surrounding it is a thing that always made it worse. Where Whether it was yeah. like the cruelty of ignorance, the cruelty of legislators, all the way down to like your family members, all the way down to just like random people that you didn't meet, like that, yeah. that you've never met telling you about yourself, telling you about like your community, you know, casting judgment, telling you that it's your fault. It's like the way that society sped it along that is yeah. the most heartbreaking part about it. It's, and it's yeah. always been this way, you know? Yeah, very frustrating. There, there's a a moment in the the last episode, which I won't spoil because, um, Helen, I think you said you you still have the last episode. Yeah, I'm trying to savor it. <laughs> I'm really trying to savor it. That's a good decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is like a really profound moment um, with Jill at some point in that episode where she says like the the disease couldn't have found a more perfect group of people for it to exploit mm. and just like devastate because she was just like it's the shame that compounds yeah um, as much as anything and yeah it's exactly yeah <sighs> it's so much it's, man <laughs> I know but I think it's it's definitely I'm so glad that you you chose this and recommended that I watch yeah, it because I'm glad it really is a, a wonderful series in, in many ways I think yeah was there anything about it that you didn't like yeah I think maybe there's like a little bit more that I wish we could have seen from some of the characters. Um, like you mentioned, the spotlight kind of shifts and rotates throughout the episodes while also like revolving around uh, Richie a lot. But one of the, the backbones to this, to the Pink Palace, to their friend group, to the community is the character Jill, the woman in the group who really takes it on herself to be the, the carer, the supporter, the activist. 
Like everything, so much of it is thanks to Jill and the care Mm -hmm. and love that she provides. And I I think it would have been like interesting to maybe see more about her. Like, Mm -hmm. why did she decide to take on this role? Like, because it's it's such an interesting thing to be the mother hen in this sort of den of this is a bad analogy, but like gay chicklets. Especially for her who is, I didn't really talk about a munch, but she's ostensibly a, like a cis straight woman um, who is half black. Yeah. I, I just, I just wanted to know more about her. Right. She's kind of like a, I mean, it portrays her as a sort of like, a, like Mary Magdalene, kind of like Madonna yeah. character where it's just like giving and giving and giving. Um, And maybe she really is like that, selfless and mm-hmm. caring but it's a little bit of like a uh inhuman sort of saintliness and yeah. it w- would have been nice maybe to see a little bit more into the the underbelly or the the vulnerabilities or just anything like, more about her yeah just the complexity of it like it's not yeah. like you know we all want to be someone like her if, if something like this were to ever happen to our friends but it's not to say that it's not a burden because it is mm-hmm. and it would have been nice to kind of see how she deals with that burden right um, and i'm sure it has its toll on her yeah um, of course yeah that we don't see that much in this yeah um but yeah check it out love this little mini series it's only, like like we mentioned it's only five parts so it's very light work in terms of hours spent but yeah it is very joyful but it is also very devastating And that's what we've been watching this week for Culture Notes. It's been a bit of a Tumblr nostalgia revival this week, eh? There's been a lot of content about about the old site that I spent so many hours on. (laughs) (laughs) Same. So on Twitter, there's been a lot of like, you weren't there or you had to be there. Tweet format with a whole bunch of pictures of like very, very specific to millennial content. I think a lot of some Gen Zers will see these things and we'll, we'll post, we'll post some examples in our Substack. But Tumblr has been coming up quite a bit. And I was someone that lived on Tumblr between the ages of I'm going to say 20 and 25, basically. Mm. Um, it's a very, very important site for me. It's where I met my husband. Oh, no way. True, true story. Yeah. Like we were mutuals. Um, oh my God. And then this, this, and then we started talking to each other when everyone started migrating onto Twitter, basically. But yeah, that's, it's essentially where we met. Uh, I have like a, a, a decent network of Tumblr friends. But in addition to that, there was an article that came out this week that, I think rocked some people's worlds because it was about a person that ran a Tumblr blog that was very, very influential at the time. And we didn't know who was the one behind it. And this article was her writing it, basically. Yeah, it's a personal essay kind of for the the New York Times style section. Um, So this person ran your fave is problematic, which if you were a like a Tumblr user or B, you were like kind of remotely involved in like celebrity culture back in the early 2010s, um, you're probably familiar with this. Like I know I was on Tumblr a lot, I think from high school through college. And my Tumblr was like more of an aesthetic Tumblr now that I'm remembering it. Yeah, same, same, but, same, same as mine. Um, yeah. yeah, but it was also, you know, a site where that was like the, the formative education in social justice online. that I had in those years. Um, And I remember like, yeah, I would use your favorite problematic. I would go up to find any celebrity who was like, okay, is it okay to stand this person? Like, I would need to check the receipts on Mm -hmm. your favorite problematic first and just like finding out all these things. But it's interesting in this piece for the Times, the person who ran that Tumblr, she reveals 
She started it when she was in high school and it became a thing. She was grieving from the, you know, slow sort of death of her, an older sister. And she was like, what, 17 at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this like wildly influential thing that I think she sort of takes responsibility for in this piece, or she says like, I feel like I kind of created something that led to these efforts for accountability, um, for shaming, for cancel culture, everything that's now, I feel responsible for it. And it is important to note in like in any sort of conversation about this now that we know, like, well, she was a kid. Um, This person was a a grieving teenager when they created this thing that grew to have um, sort of an outsized influence. Yeah. It's really sad to read it because obviously she wasn't alone in this. It's not like she was the only site that was doing this. It's not like she was the only blog that was doing it. It's also, I think she mentioned it It had like 50,000 followers or something close to that at its peak. There's a reason for that. Like we all got off on this and people still get off on it. Right. This is kind of the, it was kind of like in the waters. Like it was, yeah, the, it was an entire culture. You know, as some people pointed out, I pointed out on Twitter, like also like the terms like your fave, um, cancel, those were sort of borrowed from black queer culture as was like a lot of sort of talk on Tumblr at yeah. the time. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting to like read this as both like a kind of historical thing, like a look back at that certain period in internet culture, yeah. but also see like the direct line to stuff like celebrity culture right now Mm -hmm. um like there's this wildly popular instagram that i feel like has been coming up more in i don't know discourse lately and more people i know follow it it's uh doma on instagram it's basically like blind items for celebrities you know pumped in through user contributions yeah um so all of this is sort of of the same kind of culture and lineage i think it's yeah, yeah it's exactly what you said it's really interesting to kind of live through it like through the the different iterations of this where we right. at that age like she was 17 but i was in my early 20s we were all kind of stumbling into social justice land kind of at the same time figuring it out obviously fucking it up and pro- also problematic ourselves like i'll be the first one to admit i was terribly problematic in my early 20s and then to see that transform into now like and the difference between now one thing i think a lot about now for example is the site diet prada diet prada was very huge i think both on tumblr now on instagram and everyone really liked it up until very recently like literally in the last like two three years everyone's like fucking sick of diet prada shit and i think there's a reason for that which is that we're all tired because we don't understand, this is something that has been talked about a lot with, with regards to cancel culture is like, what is it actually doing for restorative justice? Nothing, basically. What is it actually doing for growth? So you cancel someone and then someone comes out and then you cancel that and like nothing is actually happening to help society or what it, whatever it is that they're being called out against. So yeah, you're right. Like It's interesting to see how we went from collectively engaging in something in this to collectively exhausted about it. And then now we're reflective about it. Yeah. There is, there has to be some differentiation, I think, between like things like accountability, quote unquote accountability, um, versus like kind of this thing now where everything is sort of in a delivered in this kind of from this defensive crouch, like preemptively trying to prevent this kind of thing before it happens. All of these terms have become so still like conflated with each other and sort of generalized to the point of non-meaning yeah like what does cancel culture mean what is problematic like all these things yeah um what the hell's accountability like does anyone actually know what that would involve from these people who we are 
quote unquote like demanding accountability from yeah i don't i don't know i don't really have any answers it's just like it's the natural evolution of how this culture has been perpetuated Mm -hmm. in some ways it is like good or like i guess like it has brought some sense of like (sighs) finally like some thoughtfulness people can yeah Yeah. people can talk about this um finally we can like get into like why like this person is racist or this person is sexist these people in positions of power but also it's brought with it like a lot of just like not really knowing what we are searching for in terms of like like when we quote-unquote cancel people or like what is the thing that will sort of I don't know, is there like such thing as a second chance or is there something that anyone can do to become a better person and and grow after, you know, these call outs have happened? Well, Uh, I mean, I I don't really know. I don't know either. I think it comes down to that whole like good faith, bad faith. Do you believe that people can change? And obviously some people, when they are called out, they'll tell on themselves as to the fact that they might not have learned the lessons, don't understand what accountability looks like. But then there are there are instances where apologies do come, and then sometimes you see this weird bad faith um, discussion around apologies, and it's just it's tough because like so much of regret and so much of shame is so personal, and we as a society or we as people that call out whoever it might be can't tell. We don't know how much regret someone has. You either take their word for it or you move on. Right. Well, like half of this is like the thrill of cancel culture or whatever is like the thrill of gossip maybe it is like for some people it is rooted in the sense of like i do think you should be called out i do think you need to account for xyz but for like you know so many more of the onlookers or people who participate it is it's it's a form of gossip (laughs) and i think the whole fascination behind celebrity culture like the way that we have always loved the rise and the fall of someone um and that you know the, the more you get that the more it kind of hits something uh, but i do think that there's like especially now with our generation because now we have all transformed through the internet like we've gone from our teens up until like adult like straight up adulthood as millennials there is something in there where it's i guess we're all tired or we're exhausted by it and we've now have realized like 10 years down the line or whatever that like it hasn't really changed anything like we've been canceled like our faves have been problematic and it like we're still dealing with it now and like what does that even fucking mean anymore you know like what value does that hold nothing (laughs) like so much of a a binary like yeah problematic non-problematic yeah um first like if you name anything it should be naming it in specifics like name what the thing is yeah and then i don't know one person it it is just it's too much of a of a flat you know black and white yeah it's it's flattening yeah definitely but yeah like so tumblr culture like back in the the discourse man this past week yeah <laughs> for better or for worse it's very triggering say, over like, here like in a good and a bad yeah. way for me i think yeah yeah i will say like i definitely miss the days of just like no think just reblog pretty pretty pictures uh on my tumblr absolutely uh, so not r.i.p tumblr but r.i.p our our memories of tumblr yes um so that is what we've been thinking about and consuming and watching this week if you are watching or consuming anything that you think we should check out um including film tv or just like culture in general 
uh, let us know. We are at criticismisdead at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, criticismisdead, all one word. Feel free to subscribe to our Substack if you want, like links, extra like show notes, whatever else we're into lately. And as always, thank you for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe share this podcast with a friend. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Jijong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.